We're in a series called The Heat Is On. And uh, how many of you have at least heard one other message in the Heat Is On series? This is my way of taking attendance in the summer. Okay, you've at least come once in the month of July. Great. Some of you are new to the series this morning. And we're looking at situations in our life where things get really tough. You know, when the heat is on and, and you're, you're kind of getting hot under the collar, you're getting sweaty, you're, you're kind of like uh, just feeling the pressure, maybe at work, maybe at home, maybe in the family, maybe a situation in your life. And, and you're, you feel like, God, what do I do? What do I do in this moment? And so we've been looking at different stories in the Bible each week where the heat is on, where the pressure's on, and we're trying to learn from those characters in the Bible and how they responded. Today I want to ask you this question. When the heat is on, where do you turn? What's your source? Where do you go to for strength? Where do you go to for life? Where do you go to for hope? Now, how many of you have ever played Pac-Man? I don't, do they even make like a Xbox version of Pac-Man anymore? I mean, Pac-Man was the greatest video game ever. I think that was the last one I ever played, and then I kind of haven't been able to keep up with the, with the video gaming trend. Uh, Pac-Man, if you, let me see again, how many of you played Pac-Man? I want to know. I mean, you don't really have to, yeah, the rest of you, you'll just have to deal. Um, most of us have. It's this little, it's this little yellow guy, and he goes, what does he do? He goes, wagga, 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 right? And he, he goes, and, and the object is, he's being chased by ghosts. And these ghosts, they come, and I only remember, like, Pinky. And there's a red one, and I don't remember the other names. Anyone else? Blinky. Oh, yeah, Pinky and Blinky. And these ghosts chase you, and you're eating these little dots, and it's kind of like, like Pac-Man's trying to earn his living, or he's trying to stay alive. He's got to eat all these things to make it through the, this life. And then, um, eventually, the ghosts catch up, right? And if, and if you have avoided them long enough, they get faster and faster. And it's kind of like life, right? Something's trying to get you, something's trying to keep you down, maybe it's the devil, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your spouse, I don't know. But somebody's trying to get you, right? They're coming at you, wagga wagga. You're trying to get away, and where is your source? What do you got to get to, to survive? That's right, I think they're called power pellets, if I remember right. The power pellets, they were in the different corners, remember? And then if you could just get to the power pellets before the, the ghost got you, what happened? they turned color and they ran and then it was like wagga, 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 wagga and now you're trying to get them, right? And you're trying to, trying to you know, you stay alive. And so here's this, this principle. The question is, where do you go? What are your power pellets that you go to when times are tough, when the heat is on? Where do you go to go, i got to get there. And if I can just get there, then I'm going to get a new source of energy and life and maybe things will turn for me and go in the right direction. And that's what I want to talk to you about today when times are tough. Where do we turn? I want to look at a story today, which is probably one of the most epic showdowns in the Bible. I mean, we're talking like a big showdown. Like, it's a throwdown, showdown. Like, whose God is bigger? Whose God is in charge? It's all on the line, and the heat is definitely on during this, this story. One man puts it all on the line, and he's risking certain death if God doesn't come through for him. And so we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. So if you already want to turn there, actually we're going to begin actually in chapter 16 a little bit, cover some of 17, and uh, and kind of go from, from there. And so what we have here, we began the story last week. If you were here last week, we talked about the prophet Elijah and how he helped this widow during a time of drought and actually how she helped him in a time of drought and really how God really provided for the two of them in a very difficult time and for her son. Well, this takes place in that same context. And so this will be a little refresher for some of you from last week and new information from for some of the rest of us. This is about 850 years before Christ, 850 B.C. 
in the area of Jerusalem, Israel. The nation of Israel has settled there. They've had some kings, some good kings. They've had some bad kings. And now there's a bad king on the throne, and his name is King Ahab. And here's what, here's what it says in chapter 16 about King Ahab. But Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to live like Jeroboam, another bad king, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians. And he began to worship Baal, B-A-A-L. So it was sort of like he was the worst king, he was bad like others, but, but he went even farther. He went to the point of worshiping the god Baal. Now that might not sound like a horrible thing, or it might not sound like, what's, so, what's the big deal about that? Well, first of all, what nation is he the king of? The nation of Israel. These are to be the people of God, the chosen ones. And what is the worst thing that he is doing? He is breaking the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any idols, right? And it says here in, in, in Exodus chapter 20 where the, where the Ten Commandments are found, the second one, do not make any idols of any kind. It says this, you must never, God is saying this, you must never worship or bow down to them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not share your affection with any other God. Your God is a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God. Now we might go, we're not supposed to be jealous. He's not jealous of other gods, right? He, because those other gods don't exist. They're not real. He's not, what is he jealous of? He's jealous of our love and affection. He's jealous for our attention. I am a jealous husband. I do not take well if my wife were to start showing affections to another man or to some other things. You would say, Mark, you should be a jealous husband, right? That jealousy in that sense is what God is saying. I don't want my children and my people showing love and affection and giving attention to some other gods. And here, the king who's to be leading this entire nation is worshiping and making idols to this god, Baal. He was the god of the surrounding nations, or of the people that they were living with, the Canaanites and the Mesopotamians. He was a deity. And here's the thing, he was associated with this. He was associated with agriculture. He was believed to be, quote, the giver of life. And mankind was dependent on him for providing what was necessary to sustain the farms, the flocks, and the herds. He was also called the son of Dagon. It's kind of an interesting name. Who was in control of the grain. And he was also called Hadad, the storm god, who would provide plentiful rains after hearing his voice and the thunder. And so here's this god that they believed and prayed to and worshipped. And, and the worship was, was, was very sensual, very, very um, expressive and and there was a lot of sexual things that had to do with it. There were some gruesome things with it. There was sacrifice, human sacrifice, baby sacrifice in different ways. And, and, and why are the people of God and the king following this kind of behavior and worshiping this God, Baal, and hoping that he is their giver of life? And we might look at them and go, oh, those silly people, those silly people of that time. How could they turn to something that has no power? sustain them? Why would they worship these gods? And the question for us, though, is how is God looking at our culture and our lives? And what does he see? Who are the givers of life that we worship? Where do you go when times are tough? We're saying, I need to get through this situation. I need to have some help. I need, I need some answers. And we turn to all kinds of stuff. When, when the money is tight, 
when financially things are tough, what do we do? We, we gotta, we gotta get more money. And so we, we gotta work more hours, or maybe, maybe I gotta just uh, start worshiping at the altar of work. Or maybe, just maybe, I could win the lottery. Right? I mean, that's, if, if the lottery could provide for me, that's it. I mean, that, my life would be great. Anyone ever thought that? Yesterday, I was at the Phoenix Mercury game with our daughters and some others from the church had also gotten some tickets and we were there and we got moved down to a good section, uh, closer to the floor and, and during the game, they do all kinds of entertaining stuff, right? And, and one of the things they did was a hamburger drop with little parachutes and they were like fl- floating down in these little boxes and, and then just all kinds of stuff. And then during, you know, I was trying to get one, I couldn't get one, didn't come near. And then they did, then all of a sudden this blimp kind of came up from the side, and it was flying around, this remote-controlled blimp, sponsored by the Arizona Lottery. And I thought it was cool, they were just kind of flying it around, and then I noticed it was dropping things. It was dropping vouchers for lottery tickets. And then I started thinking, like, you know, they started telling, it's for a good for a scratcher's ticket. I don't know what a scratcher's ticket is, I've never played the lottery, I, I, I win at least $100 every year by not playing, $2 a week. Um, add it up, folks. Um, invest it, do it by 20, 30 years. That's why we don't play the lottery. So, but I couldn't help but think, like, man, a thousand dollars a week for 20 years—that'd be a nice little boost to the old income. And uh, we'd support one. We'd support one. Yeah. Um, somebody else told me they, they had won some some money in Vegas, and they, they were going to tithe from that. And I said, that's great. But did you know that in the Bible it says if you win money through gambling or the lottery, it's a reverse tithe. Some of you guys are going, I, I don't know my Bible well enough. Is he serious or not? Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But the principle is, if you're going to win it that way, you've got to give 90% to God and then you can keep 10. Um, but I couldn't help it. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like, I want one of those tickets. Like, you know, this would, this would be perfect if God would, like, you know, I've been faithful. I'm a pastor. Like, you know, I, don't, I haven't played the lottery. And if I just got a free ticket, surely it's going to be a winner. I can't like be jumping up and down and they put me on the jumbotron and the pastor's trying to like get a lottery ticket. That's just not a good image. And so, so what I did is I sat back in my seat and I'm looking and the blimp starts flying like literally like right over, right over here. And all of a sudden it lets these little tickets go and they go, they're floating down. I'm like, my girls are like trying to get people around me or jumping. And it's like, it's coming right at me. I'm like, so I stood up and I reached it and I got a ticket. I got one. Snag it right out of the hands of an 11-year-old girl. It was awesome. And <laughs> I got one. And so and I looked. It was a voucher for a ticket. I'm like, all right, got to go get mine. So I, I went to where it was, and I asked them, like, what, what do I do with this thing? She told me. And, and so I took it back to my seat. I'm like, well, Heavenly Father, Lord of the universe. Um, and, and I started seeing how I started thinking, like, money, a little more money, a little more hope and a little more money, man, it would just make life so good. This lottery ticket could be my Savior. And then I scratched them off one at a time. One at a time. And you know what I got? Nothing. (laughs) Zippo. And I was defeated and I was deflated and I thought, Lord, you didn't provide for me through the lottery ticket. So i got to buy another one. right? No, that's the curse, right? It's a little indicator that something that little can become a God. And in that moment, I saw how even in my life, just a little more money would would ease the tension here and there and could help out in so many different ways. So what are the gods that we are pursuing? What are our idols? You look for the comfort in the arms of a person. You can't be alone if you're single. You always have to be with somebody. 
Or maybe you're pursuing it through fantasy. Pornography, video games, movies, escapism through, through substances or alcohol or just pastimes. Maybe you're eating. Maybe you're shopping. Maybe you have to go on vacations. I don't know. We pursue these things. We go, if I can just have more of that, my life will look better. My life will feel better, even if just for the moment. And whether we admit it or not, those become sources of life. And we start, whether we realize it or not, are making idols out of those things because we go to those things for some relief. We go to those things for some life, hopefully. And we're, and we're trying desperately for that to be our God. And while we don't look and go, well, I don't really worship them. I don't pray to that stuff. We don't have temples for these things, or do we? In some ways, a movie theater is kind of a temple, isn't it? It's a temple to Hollywood, isn't it? They have temples all over the world. I mean, people worship all over the place. Hollywood, the stars. I mean, it's all this fantasy world. And if I could become rich and famous or just these stories. And I'm not dogging movies and, and that stuff. I enjoy a good movie. But in some ways, haven't we built these temples? You go to big cities and what do you see? The skyscrapers. Or you see big banks. Everywhere these banks, we have them all over. They're like temples. <laughs> where our money is and where investment is and, and where the future is. We have temples to education called schools. And, and again, not all of them are bad and not everything is horrible, but, but in some ways, don't they begin to resemble some things that we continue to go to for something? When I think about uh, the temples of our gods, Las Vegas comes to mind. Now, I've never been to Las Vegas, and it's, I'd like to go sometime and, and see it, but at the same time, kind of have like ick feelings about it. A place that labels itself as Sin City. I mean, as a badge of honor. And Christians flock there. And we go there. And I don't, you know, I'm sure you can go there. We need to have a presence there at different times. And there's great churches in that area and, and, and serving and whatnot. But, but I, look at, I look at that and I think, I saw this commercial that was on TV just last night or yesterday or whatever. It was for the MGM Grand. It said, if Las Vegas had a capital, we'd be it. I would want to stand before my creator having come up with that tagline and owning it. Think about it. Sin City had a capital. We're it. This is King Ahab's capital. This is Jerusalem. We're worshiping Baal. We're doing it in, 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 in sensuous ways and in, in corrupt ways. And we're just trying to indulge in our lives. And it's just utter indulgence because somehow you can go to Las Vegas and you can find life. You can get money there. You can have sex there. You can get whatever you want. Entertainment. Just fill up your tank because when you leave from Las Vegas, you come home feeling refreshed and renewed that you can take on life. Do you? If you had a good vacation there and you ate some free you know, 72-ounce steak because they comped you or whatever, you know, maybe. But, but really, what happens in these places, right? And I wonder, what are the gods? We don't see ourselves as worshiping others, but this is the context here with which Elijah begins to confront King Ahab. And God's judgment now comes. And I don't even know if it's as much of a judgment as it is the people's own judgment on themselves. Because here's what, here's what happens. And we read it in verse, verse 17. Elijah, or in chapter 17, the first verse, Elijah comes to King Ahab and he says this, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God whom I worship and serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years unless I give the word. So what is the, what is the pronouncement here? You're going to have drought. No rain, no dew, nothing for the next three years. 
And I thought, well, that's an interesting, you know, that's God kind of like really showing, you know, maybe it's kind of a harsh punishment, but, but who is the God of Baal? What is, what is he the God of? What did I say? I'm, I'm testing you now. Were you listening? Rain, agriculture, the giver of life. It's almost as if God simply said, okay, you think Baal can give you life. He can send the rains. He's going to grow your crops. That's who you're praying to. That's who you're worshiping to. Then, okay. Hands off. I'm going to be a hands off God. I'm going to step back for a little while. Um, see how you do. Go ahead. Pray. Pray to your God. Go to the temple. Do the things that you do. Sacrifice some more babies, some other humans. Go have some more crazy sex and do that kind of stuff. And, and, and let's see if the rains come. And let's see if the giver of life is there. And let's see if there is a source for you in that, in that setting. And so in some ways, it's almost like God is just saying, all right, you wanted to worship those gods, then you try to get your life from that God. And so for three years, there was no sign of Elijah. He didn't come back to King Ahab, and there was a severe drought. And that's where our story last week took place with the widow that was about to die and how she sustained Elijah's life through obedience. And now we can see her impact on the larger story. Three years pass. And all of a sudden, Elijah shows up in chapter, uh, let's see here, chapter 18. Elijah shows up, and he comes before King Ahab. And he's basically saying, all right, it's time now. The drought is over. Times have been tough. And things are about to change. But you can imagine the people in this moment going, three years of drought. That's like three years of our recession, right? That we, we've gone through even more. And you're, Where do we turn during that time? Now, I'm sure there were faithful people there who were praying to God. And wondering, where is God? He's not answering our prayers. Maybe He's provided for them like He did for the widow. But I wonder for us the question, during times of drought, if God says, all right, pursue the gods that you have and see where that leads you, in the end of you following that journey or us following that journey, do we find life? So if we find it through success, if we find it through stuff, if we find it through food, if we find it through other addictions, if we find it through entertainment, through education, through careers, if we pursue that path as being the source of our life, where does it end? Does it bring you that fulfillment? Does it bring you those things? And I think that's the question before us because God let them, let them go that far. And then three years later, now, Elijah shows up, which means the rains are probably coming, right? That was the promise. Until I come back, it's not going to rain. But Elijah wants to make a point. I Probably more so that God wants to make a point. This is really about who do we worship? Who do we honor? And so Elijah steps before King Ahab. And he's basically saying this, look, I've got a, I've got a challenge for you. We're going to go to Mount Carmel, which is a mountain where the people of God had worshipped and where the Israelites knew this was kind of a, a, a holy place for them. He said, we're going to go to Mount Carmel. I'm going to go there. You bring the people of Israel. Let them show up there. And then bring 450 of the prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of, of Asherah, right? Or Asherah. And, and so there's, there's like 850 prophets and all the people. And we're going to have a throwdown on this mountain. And here's, here's the challenge. Well, before that, as, as they get up to the top, right? He says, he says this to the king in verse, uh, eight, in verse 18. He said, you and your family are the troublemakers. He's talking to King Ahab, Elijah is. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. And so, right, so then he's, so he's telling him, here's the problem. Now we're going to take these prophets, we're going to go to the mountain, and then in verse 21, he stood in front of all these people, 
And he says this, How long are you going to waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow Him. So Elijah's drawing a line in the sand. He's going, here, you've got a choice to make, people. We can either keep looking for life in these other things, and if, and if that's where the God is, then, then, then go for it. But if God, our Lord, is the God, then follow and serve Him. But the people were completely silent. And then he says, all right, I'm the only prophet left. We're going to have a little showdown here. Me versus the 450 prophets of Baal. And he says, all right, here's the deal. Here's how we're going to do this. We're going to have a little, like a, almost imagine like a, like a, like a cook-off or a showdown or something. He says, bring me two bulls. Two bulls. You can pick whichever bull you want. We're going to build an altar. We're going to put wood on top of it. We're going to chop up the bull as a sacrifice. And then we're each going to pray. You're going to pray to your God. And I'm going to pray to the Lord our God. And we're going to see whoever strikes fire to the altar wins. Spit shake. King Ahab, Elijah. Deal. All right? And so they go up to the mountain. They start uh, building these altars. And Elijah's, uh, Elijah waits. And he allows the prophets of Baal to go first. And so, did this thing go? All right. And so he starts, uh, they start building the, the, the altar. And they put the, the rocks on there. They start chopping the wood. And they put the bulls on top of, on top of the wood. And then they start, they start praying. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. They danced wildly around the altar all morning shouting to Baal. Praying and just like somehow for hours and hours they're praying. Strike down fire. You know what I found interesting? What was also the god of, the god Baal? What was he the god of? Thunder. This would be a good time for the god of thunder to show up, wouldn't it? So I think this challenge was kind of intentional if we hear the, the background. It's almost like God has given him every opportunity, right? I'm going to take away the rains, because if your God is the God of the rains and the agriculture and, and giver of life, then surely he could provide. And now in the showdown, I'm going, to, I'm going to set it up for you. I'm going to lob you the softball ball, right? You're just going to be able to knock this one out of the park. All you got to do, God of thunder, one lightning bolt, you win. And so they're dancing around going crazy. And about noon, Elijah turns into like a four or five-year-old. In, in the way he acts. Right about this time, he starts, I don't know if this is good biblical advice here, but he starts mocking the other prophets that are dancing around. He's kind of like standing there and he's going, maybe your God's asleep. You know, maybe he's off taking a nap somewhere. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe he went off and fixed himself a little snack, the refrigerator. And then he even goes on and go, he says, maybe he's relieving himself. It's right in there in the Bible. It's, it's awesome. If you want like good comebacks, he, he's talking about that right now. He says, Verse 27, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or he is relieving himself. Or maybe he is away on a trip, or he is asleep and needs to be wakened. This is how we should interact with people in our world that don't believe like we do. No, that's probably not good advice. Um, hey, he's Elijah. Let him, let him do that. So, But he's basically saying, come on. And you know what it did? It infuriated them in different ways. And they began to go even crazier. They were dancing wildly. It says they began to cut themselves. They were bleeding. And they were in this frenzy trying to evoke their God to do something. Surely He can answer. And I wonder, again, do we see ourselves in this story in some ways? Now, we don't do that in worship, but somehow when, when the things that we're pursuing don't seem to answer, don't seem to come through, we tend to go further and further and further into them. Surely if I get another lottery ticket, if I, if I just get another lover, 
if I can just find another thing. And we, we, we pursue these, these paths that aren't leading us to life, but we kind of almost want to work them a little harder. And they're not leading us anywhere. And that's what's happening with all the prophets. And so they're crying out, and it says there was no reply, no voice, no answer in verse 29. No reply, no voice, no answer. Frustration. There's emptiness. There's nothing. There's hollowness there that comes in the pursuit of these other gods. And I think sometimes, like I said, we pour into these things and we, and we go deeper. We try harder. Look at me. Notice me. Value me. Feed me. Fill me up. Give me life. But it's all looking at the wrong source. So there's no answer. There's no reply. There's silence. Finally, it's time for Elijah. The evening's coming. It's interesting because it now coincides with the normal routine of the evening sacrifice that was part of the, 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 the faith and the religion of the Israelites was to have a morning and an evening sacrifice. And about the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah steps up. And here's the thing. He walks up to an old altar that's been torn down. So I don't know what this altar was used for. But at some point in the past, the people of God came to Mount Carmel. They had built this altar as a way of thanking God for something, worshiping, and it had been torn down. And again, the people had also gathered, not just the prophets, and so they're watching this. And so what does Elijah do? He first takes 12 stones. Very symbolic move here. He takes 12 stones, and he begins to rebuild the altar. The 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In a way, he's trying to say to them, and he's reminding them, people, we are the people of God, not the people of Baal. We're the people of God, and we are the 12 tribes, and we have come together, and he's rebuilding this altar, maybe reminding them of the altar that they built after the Lord parted the Red Sea and they escaped from, from Egypt and slavery and, and, and maybe the people are watching and being taken back to a time when they worship God and he rebuilds the altar with these 12 stones. He chops up the wood and puts it on top. He takes the bull that's left and he cuts it up as a sacrifice and he places it on top. But then he ups the ante. And remember, the heat is on, right? We're talking about a heat is on moment. Picture yourself in that moment. Hundreds of prophets around you, you're the only one. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people have ascended this mountain for this great showdown. It didn't work with the prophets of Baal. And now here, Elijah is, it all comes down to this moment. And then he even ups the ante at this point. He said, bring me some water. Now water was already scarce, right? They're in a drought. Bring me some water. Bring me some jugs of water. And they bring him the jugs of water. And then it's going, he's like, oh yeah, you think this is tough? Pours one bucket over. Pours another one over. Now bring me one more. Pours it over. It says so much so that it soaked the offering. It soaked the wood and the rocks. There was even a ditch around the outside that he had dug a little trench around the altar. And it even filled up with water. And now the showdown was on, right? The heat is on. Is God going to come through? What's going to happen in this moment? And in stark contrast to the other prophets of Baal, dancing wildly, going crazy, trying to evoke themselves almost into a frenzy, working themselves up, mutilating themselves. Surely he's got to hear Elijah prays a very simple and direct prayer. Here's what he prays. Find it in verse 36. At the customary time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reminding the people, this is our God. Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God 
and that you have brought them back to yourself. See, his prayer is that God would be glorified, that they would know this is from God and that this was not like some kind of trick that Elijah worked up, but that this was at God's call and his command. And in this simple prayer, in contrast to the entire morning and afternoon of crazy prayers that led to silence, he prays this simple prayer that I probably read in about 15 seconds. And then it says this in the next verse, Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the ditch. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and cried out, The Lord is God. The Lord is God. This is a pretty tense moment. It wasn't just this moment. The heat was on throughout that entire drought. Where do you turn when times are tough? Who do you worship? Who do you rely on? Who do you pray to? Who do you go to? Who is the giver of life? Who's your giver of life? And in this powerful display, the people turn and they recognize the Lord is God. It's a declaration. It's a statement. It isn't Baal. It isn't the idols that we worship. It isn't the things, even some of the good things in life. Our source and the true giver of life is God alone. I kind of wish I could skip this next verse, these next verses, but right after this, Elijah commanded... Now, this is kind of cool, though, if you're kind of like into like war and military and like, raw Elijah wasn't like a, oh, I'm a prophet of the Lord. He was like, I'm a prophet of the Lord. You know, I just called down fire from heaven. I mean, this guy was bad stuff. Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. What do you do with that? I mean, that's pretty gruesome. Uh, I, I appreciate that Jesus came and gave us some grace and showed us a way to have righteousness and holiness through Him. But in the Old Testament, there were severe consequences for breaking the commandments. The first commandment, the second commandment. All of them could have been killed. God extended grace. For years he extended grace to let them turn. Even Elijah at the beginning gave him a chance to turn. Choose who you're going to follow. Then he demonstrated this amazing miracle and there were people who said the Lord is God and they weren't struck down. But in the Old Testament there was a principle of, 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 of holiness and purity and these people have committed an egregious sin of misleading and, and, and leading people away from the true God and worshiping a false God. After that, I think more people decided to worship God. I think we had a little bit more of that. That might happen, but I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that's maybe what happened there. It's a, it's a tough truth, and it's, and it's, you see that and you go, man. But it means God means business. We play around with this stuff, and I think in the church, you know, we, yes, we come here and we worship God, but we also worship other gods. And sometimes do we turn to those other gods, and we don't call them gods, but but where is our heart? Where is our full allegiance? Where do we go? Man, when it's all in the line, God, it's only you. You are my only source. And after this moment, in the next section there, it says, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go and enjoy a good meal, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. I mean, after three years, how would you love to hear that? No rain. I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. The rains are going to come. Remember the promise to the widow last week? The rains will come and your crops will grow. 
In due season, God will bring the refreshing. And so there's this promise. And he hears that mighty thunderstorm coming. And then he sends the people away. And Ahab goes away. Then Elijah goes back up the mountain with his servant. And he begins to pray, Lord, send the rain. And he then sends a servant. He goes, go look and see if there's any rain coming. His servant runs out to the edge of the mountain. He looks, clear sky. Where was he hearing the thunderstorm coming from? Was it in his spirit? He does it again. He prays for rain. He looks, no rain. Now he's going, okay, man, I thought the rains were going to come after this, this all happened. He prays a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time. And a number that's pretty powerful in Scripture, a seventh time. A time of wholeness, a time of, a number of completion. The seventh time he prays and he sends a servant out to look. And he looks out on the horizon and the servant comes running back. I said, I see a cloud. It's the size of a hand on the horizon. And then, and then Elijah says to the servant, go and tell King Ahab, you better get home because if not, your chariot's going to get stuck in the wash. And you know, we all know what happens here when the monsoons come, right? And he told him, if the dust kicks up, pull your chariot over to the side of the road and turn off all your lights so the other chariots don't follow into you. If you're listening on podcasts and are not from Arizona, you have no clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> and some of you here might not, I don't know. Uh, but he's so confident that God's going to send the rain, and it does. And the rains start coming, and God refreshes the land, and his promise is true. He's shown to be the giver of life, the true God of thunder, the true God of rain, the true God of agriculture and sustenance for the people. Who's your true giver of life? Who's your source? These other sources all run dry. You take their course, any of them, they're going to hit a dead end in a ditch at some point where they cannot provide for you and cannot bring you life and cannot bring you wholeness. Jesus met a woman at a well in the New Testament in John chapter 4. She's going there, kind of ashamed, kind of going at a part of the day where nobody notices, and he asks her to draw some water for him. And she does, and they have this conversation. He begins to ask her a question about water, and he begins to ask her about her life, and we begin to find out that, that here's this woman who's found, is looking for her hope and her salvation in the arms of a man. She married once and maybe was happily married or maybe not once, then got divorced. Needed to have a man, I assume. Got married a second time, divorced. A third time, divorced. A fourth time, divorced. A fifth time, divorced. This now, then Jesus talks to her about this and says, um, actually, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband either. She's living with somebody. She's looking for life. She's looking for wholeness. She's looking for hope in the arms of another man instead of finding it in her true source. And then Jesus begins to talk to her and he says, do you want to drink some water? Do you want to drink some water that you're not going to thirst again? In John 5 it says this, or 4, people soon become thirsty again after drinking this water, which was the water at the well. But the water I give them takes away thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring within them, giving them eternal life. I love the woman's response. Please, sir, the woman replied to Jesus. Give me some of that water and I will never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to haul water. We're hauling water and going to all the wrong wells. And what Jesus is saying here, he is the source. He is the giver of life. As a friend of mine says, that after a lot of his messages, he says, if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. He's the source. The living water. And I just wonder today if some of us just need to say, you know, we've got to cast down some of our idols. 
There's some things that need to be burned down, that need to be torn out of our lives because they're the wrong gods, and I'm pursuing and pursuing those things for happiness and fulfillment and for life, and they're not going to be found there. They're only going to be found in Christ. And to find that fulfillment in Him this morning.